All right, welcome to the Kebab of Canuck podcast. And today uh, I'm really excited uh, quite a bit actually to have my special guest Richard Grannon here all the way across the pond from London, UK. And uh, I encountered Richard Grannon through a, a YouTube rabbit hole I went on many moons ago uh, when I was looking at basically essentially balancers and combatives and that kind of thing. And that's the world that I was in where I came across his videos where he was a, uh, a doorman in the UK in Liverpool, was it, sir? Liverpool, yes, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, he took on some com combat sports and combative training, and that was kind of how I knew him. And uh, he, many of you may know him from his uh, channel Street Fight Secrets, and uh, that, that's kind of the history. And then, uh, Richard, you, your life kind of took a turn. I don't know how much you're still involved in the combatives, but you really came to help people with psychological and emotional trauma rather than just a physical trauma. And that's really exciting to me, and I'm just uh, hoping to pick your brain and, and hear uh, – no, here's some pearls of wisdom that you have to share with the audience today. Wonderful, wonderful. There are many things in my brain. You're welcome <laughs> to that which is there. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so, if if we could, maybe just uh, a little bit about yourself and kind of that that little bit of that journey from kind of combatives into uh, what do you want to call it emotional self defense? I don't know what you what you'd want to term it as. Well, it was it was uh, after. Running uh, Street Fight Secrets, I think for nearly uh, 10 years, what I found um, speaking to other combatives instructors, fighters, uh, uh, ex-military guys, police, guys and girls, is that a, a really unusually high number of them were in emotionally abusive relationships. And I was getting, obviously I had a degree in psychology, I was qualified in NLP, and a lot of people were asking me for life coaching on the side um, and the demand for that was growing so I created the Spartan Life Coach project I was like oh this will be you know tough girls and tough guys they want therapy because that's for pussies so they want uh, so we'll call it life coaching so and it's called the Spartan Life Coach so that concept was was created in 2012 and I started releasing YouTube videos around having um, poor ego boundaries people pleaser syndrome um, and a tendency to, whilst being capable outside of the home, being perhaps a little a little weak with our intimate partners and family members, and it really just blew up from there. It really um, it really uh, it grew at an exponential rate. I think it was the same year YouTube actually deleted the Street Fight Secrets uh, YouTube channel for being too violent. I was teaching people how to defend themselves from being knifed to death, and I was too violent about it. So YouTube just deleted the, the friggin' channel. Um, so yeah, Spartan Life Coach became the main thing that I focused on, and uh, it's only actually in the last couple of years that I myself personally have gone back to any kind of combative training. And I haven't done, I've been to one combative seminar, and uh, I've, I've just started doing bag work again, maybe like, a month ago because I had ACL surgery. Um, so the answer to the question is how involved am I in combatives now? Very, very, very little, but I do miss it. I do miss it a lot. Excellent. I, I, uh, I was just going through some of your Spartan Life Coach videos today, and uh, there's a little trailer you have on your website. It's like a minute and a half long or some odd, but it shows you, yeah, it shows you in the boxing gym there, kind of looking at some pads, looking at some gloves. So is that is that kind of the mainstay right now, just going in there, working the bag, working the gloves? Or yeah, that's it. I, I – um... I think for my own sanity, I, I turn up to the gym most days and I'll be, I'll be lifting weights and I, I'll, I usually need to, to hit something. 
in order to uh, to feel happy again. So um, so yeah, at, at, at the moment, um, it's awkward with their. I think I'm eight months out from the ACL surgery. Um, Muay Thai, like my love for Muay Thai has come back and I'm just, I'm just like, oh, I can't, I have to drag myself out the gym. I'm like, okay, it's home time now. You need to go do some work, go and be an adult, stop playing on the bags. Um, which was, which was something that I was first exposed to when I was about 16 years old. And it's the one thing that's been the most persistent, um, persistent love has been that I've always gone back to is, is Muay Thai. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I'm up to at the moment. But I do think I want to be more involved in combatives again. I'm interested in it still. And I think it's becoming more relevant, sadly, mm-hmm. uh, with the world being in the state that it's in. Yeah. Um, I think it's reasonable to assume that many civilians who are not involved in the security industry may potentially face very high levels of violence in, in the next few years. You see a lot. I'm sure, obviously, I think the media probably amplifies things, you know, makes it seem worse than it is. Uh, not to say that things aren't bad, but, you know, a lot, of, a lot of times it seems that, you know, we think about guys, security or police or something like that, that they train in combatters or in self-defense or defensive tactics because they're going to be encountering the violence. They're going to, it's going to be a regular part of their kind of day-to-day. Mm. And we think that, um, if you've seen the old Pell and Teller's bullshit show where they talk about kind of how self-defense is kind of bullshit, you know, like, you know, the chances of you getting attacked like this are less than whatever. But a lot of times you're seeing people now just getting lynched by mobs just for basically who they are. <laughs> Not yes. even for them to say anything, they didn't do anything. They're just for yes. being. Yes, it's uh, the, the, the dangerous times. It is exaggerated by the media. It is overblown by the media. But, but they are still dangerous times. And, and um, I was talking, I was doing a podcast with a friend of mine yesterday. Uh, he's, he's American, American Vietnamese. And he, he used the term, uh, uh, a neo segregation, which is really interesting because I think that's the inevitable end result of the movements we're seeing now. They're going to, we're going to see racism and segregation from the left mm. rather than from traditionally, it's always been from the right, but now it's coming from the left. Um, and yes, people have been beaten. Uh, for their, um, for how they look and for for the, for the race they are, and uh, I think I think we will see more of it before it before it dies out for sure. Yeah, uh, hopefully it does die out quick. You know, I've um, on on you know I, I like to kind of peruse around it and watch left leaning videos and right leaning videos and get kind of that uh, that that spread <clears throat> uh, on the on the. If you venture over onto the further side of the right, they have uh, they're calling. There's they're also calling for segregation. Actually, are they? There's uh, there's a movement called Propertarianism, and I'm not too well versed in it, but it's it's like an alternative to like our, our, our you know our democracy as it exists. Yeah, and uh, they're calling for um, they're calling for an outright divorce between right and left, and they're they're kind of, I think they're like white ethnonationalists essentially. Okay. Um, so they're they're called they're they're looking for yeah. Um, a like and someone out there can correct me if i'm wrong either a white state at the very least they want to divorce the right from the left and to them uh, the right also means the white and uh it's, and, and when you have the left also like you said on, on the far end pushing for segregation there if you have these guys over here pushing for segregation there you know we might be well we might <laughs> who knows what will happen but we might actually see yeah, it's, it's it's not it's really not good um that this has even got any sort of um 
legs at all. Yeah. It's the kind of absurd suggestion that should be totally ignored and, and laughed at. The fact that it's being um, entertained and has a following behind it suggests to me that we as a species are, are really failing. We obviously don't know our history. Any attempt to do this will result, any attempt to move in this direction will result in the worst atrocities imaginable yeah. very, very quickly. Um, apart from anything else, it's counterfactual, it's counter-scientific. What are the mixed people supposed to do? What are mixed families supposed to do? What What is white? You know, no scientist can actually tell us what it is. No scientist can tell us how many races there are because race is a term that only scientifically applies to plants. And while some of us act like fucking plants, we're not, you know. And, and so this idea like, yeah, black people over there, Hispanics over there, whites over there, only in, you know, American prison movies have I, have I seen that. <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's such a dreadful idea and it, it can't lead to anything good. And even, you know, even recent history, the Nazis struggled with this. The Nazis were very keen for it, but they'd be like, well, if you're one quarter Jewish and half Jewish, can we, can we re-Germanify you? <clears throat> and actually, I only found this out recently. I don't know if you knew this, but you, you, could, um, you could actually be de-Jewified in Nazi Germany if you married a true-blooded Aryan if you were only a quarter Jewish. Can you imagine the absurdity of that? Of adults sitting around and going, well, how Jewish are you? Well, my grandmother, I'm a quarter Jew. What does that mean? You're a quarter Jewish. You're hundred percent human and hundred percent fucking dumb. You can't, we can't play this game. It won't work. It, it's, it's, it's non-science. It's, it's counterfactual and it's in total denial of, of history. That really bothers me that we're moving into this new dark ages where people go, well, I feel like white people are different to black people. And I'm like, I'm really glad to hear your feelings, precious. <laughs> but scientifically, there's, there isn't really a basis for this and it's totally impractical because what would we use? Blood tests? That won't right. help us with anything. Genetic testing? That won't help us with anything. So... Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't see this going anywhere. That, that I don't see that kind of movement going yeah. anywhere. Good. I saw. I saw a tweet today, and I can't remember who put it out. It made me chuckle, uh, and it was based on Canada because Canada just released uh, a federal. Uh, it's like a, a fund to help finance uh, black entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. and uh, there's people going crazy on Twitter. But one person uh, wrote that I should get my DNA tested so I can tell finally what government programs apply to me. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean it's. I am uh, sort of center left, um, and whenever I hear about these programs, you know, it's it's been since the beginning of their inception. You always think, well, God, there was a film in the eighties, and it's not it's not made a resurgence. It was called Soul Man. Do, have you heard of this? I've heard. I don't. I I don't think I've seen it. I've heard of it. There was there was a white kid who blacks up uh, to get uh, because he's from a poor family to get uh, college funding, um, and somehow it's been lost in history and it should probably <laughs> stay lost in history because the actor, the director, everybody will be in super, a lot of trouble now. But when we try and sort by race, things become absurd. And it's entirely possible, as I'm sure you know, as a Canadian, that you do have a significant amount of uh, uh, First Nation people blood. You probably do have, what do you, native Canadian blood. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I don't, they have laws in America. I don't know if it's the same in Canada where it's like if you're one sixth 
then you have a right to do this and this and this. But if you're less than one sixth, you don't get those same grants. You don't get those same rights. So people lie. Wow. <laughs> they lie to get the grants. It's, it's crazy. It, it's really crazy. You know, you're, you're talking about Nazi Germany and the Germanifying. And stuff. You're, you're reminding me, though, of Nazi Germany. You think of, like, all these, like, the Hitler youth doing, like, book burnings and stuff. I guess nowadays we don't really do book burnings. We just delete channels off of YouTube and uh, cancel people out of culture because oh, it's, we're it's, in the internet world, right? So it's, 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 ab it's absolutely book burning. It's, and I think they were actually burning Bibles not that long ago. I think Antifa was burning Bibles. It is the digital equivalent of book burning, which is... I, you know, it's, it's so pitiful and juvenile. I don't like what you said. Okay, well, I guess you're going to have to live with that, my love. No, I'm going to appeal to a higher authority to have what you said removed. I'm like, hello, Stalin. All right, Joseph Stalin. You know, what the fuck is this? You can't, you can't just say, I don't like that piece of history. I don't like that word. I don't like this person. Delete them. Mm. That's a totally juvenile response. And it's fine that some people want that because I work in mental health and I'm aware that there's a good percentage of the population that aren't mentally well, and they will want this. It's crazy that any of us go along with it. It's absurd that any government would say, oh, yeah, oh, oh did they hurt your feelings? Yeah, let's delete them. Let's cancel them. You can't, like, what is this? This is lunacy. What, what happened to... Never mind free, uh, free speech, but just being adults and just tolerating the fact that, yeah, okay, this person said something I didn't like. I guess, I guess my heart will go on. <laughs> you know, I think in many ways, if we do go into like a hard version of some sort of revolution and possibly civil war, it would be good for humanity in the long term because we must have life so easy right now to be indulging this kind of absurd nonsense yeah i mean i, I was just before he came on here i was just checking out a, a video about uh, racism in the arab world and they were showing a video footage of like an ethiopian uh nanny essentially made that was hanging there in saudi arabia hanging off a balcony and just being mocked and she she lost her grip and fell and crashed to the bottom survived and they're just talking about different uh you know, cases of racism over there. And I think if we had a snapshot of what real, real racism kind of manifests itself as and looks like, and or if we lived through that, we wouldn't be mm. getting so offended that, you know, you had a white person or, or whoever in a role that's, you know, in the book that was about a black person. And we have to cancel that now because, you know, that's, that's racism. And that's, it's, you know, it's yeah, the far cry from real racism, I think. That's a really good point. And maybe we, we need to even be careful of how, we're using uh, the word racism and that, you know, like the word rape, we really need to preserve it so that it has meaning. Mm. We really need, like, if, if I touch a girl on the bottom, we shouldn't really call that rape. We should reserve rape for really violent, so that we understand the meaning of a word. We're losing the meaning of words now. This mm. is part of this counter science post-factual culture we're in where we're just going to we're just going to invent you we're just going to change the meaning of words so we preserve rape for specific cases of violent sexual assault as an example racism really we should preserve that for you know you need to have been really in, you, I, I used to say you need to have lost a job lost a partner been physically hurt or had your life changed 
uh, to, to, to be using the term racism. This is, it's, we use it way too frivolously now, way too frivolously. Yeah. What's the, um, what's the uh, feeling, or I guess what's the climate like now over, over in London uh, with, uh, with this kind of thing? And then I guess also if we can dovetail that into what it's like over there in, with the pandemic. Um, well, I, I, as I say, I, with the ACL injury, I was going to be inside a lot anyway. I couldn't really go anywhere. I couldn't really do anything. And it, it, I had my ACL surgery on the 1st of February. We went into lockdown at the end of February. So those months, I would have lost anyway. I couldn't have exercised more than an hour a day. Um, but then as soon as I got better and we opened the borders, I ended up spending time in uh, the Czech Republic, uh, Spain, and Bulgaria. And, uh, you know, the United Kingdom, by comparison, what a bunch of hypersensitive ninnies we are. It's really sad to see how precious um, we've become as a nation and how, well, like a nation of ninnies run by bumbling Etonian private schoolboys who can't keep their stories straight from one day to the next. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm leaving uh, tomorrow night. I'm going back to the Czech Republic because... <clears throat> we're soft stepping back towards what will be probably not a total lockdown, but near enough a lockdown. Um, and there's a very, as a, you know, as somebody who counts themselves as a leftist, I'm not for tolerance, but I'm not for boundaryless tolerance. I'm not for boundaryless giving because psychologically speaking, that's a really sick codependent state to be in. But that's what Britain's doing. It's boundaryless tolerance and boundaryless giving. And you just think, we have a conservative government right now. Could you maybe put your foot down? You know, when they start attacking the cenotaph, when they start attacking monuments um, of, of dead soldiers who've given us the freedom and the democracy that allows you to protest, can we have a statement from our prime minister that says, oh, I don't really like, I don't really like that? He said nothing because... Everybody's terrified. They're cowards. They're fucking cowards. And so they won't, they won't say, you know, this is, they won't even publicly condemn it, let alone send in a tactical police unit and smash everybody up. They won't, which, which I don't approve of, obviously, because you have the right to protest. I don't want to live in a, in a police, a fascist state. But we do have laws that protect uh, private and public property. Let's use them. Because Whilst there might be statues of racists out there and bad men and psychopaths, yes, the world was built by bad men, ladies and gents. Let's wake up to that fucking fact. These were not nice people. These were violent men. They were capable of violence and they did violence. That's who built your world. That's who gives you your trainers. That's who gives you your iPhone. That's who gives you your fucking designer clothing. Bad men who are capable of violence. Protect the entire system that do that. Some of those bad men... Yes, they didn't have the most sensitive views on race. <laughs> They're not like us. They weren't like us. They were brutes. And if they could dehumanize somebody and take their shit, they would do it. Okay, maybe some of these monuments do need taking down. Maybe the better thing to do is to change the plaque on the monuments and say, okay, this is, this is, this is who this guy was. This is what he did. I don't think we should have a, an angry mob uh, ideologically infected, deciding on a dime what stays and what goes. I think that's a real error. And I can't really believe I have to say that out loud. It seems completely obvious to me. 
but apparently it's not obvious to everybody else and it's not obvious to the people in charge. Yeah. Do I sound like a middle-aged ranting man? I can hear myself sounding that's like a, a That's okay. You own it. Own it. We are middle-aged ranting men. It's fine. <laughs> you know, I saw, um, I encountered a piece of absolute prophecy when I went to uh, the basement of a Toronto sushi bar and I was going to the stall to take a shit and <laughs> written in fucking permanent marker on the stall and door in front of me was the future belongs to the crowds. And uh, that struck me. And that was, uh, that was like a decade ago and I'm seeing it come to fruition now. <laughs> yes. Yes, it really does. Um, there's a lot to that. And there's a lot of questions that we need to ask about whether we're on the right or the left or the center, our huge leaning towards collectivism. We see things in collectivist terms. And I'm even asked psychological questions in collectivist terms. People say to me, what should people do? Mm. I'm, like, I'm a psychologist. I don't, I'm not a politician. I'm not a preacher. I don't know what people should do, but everybody wants to talk in these, like, what, what orthodoxy should the masses adhere to? Sorry, not just left, also libertarian. I don't give a fuck what masses of people do because masses of people are idiots. Mm. I can tell you what an individual might do based on sound philosophical principles, but I don't. What the collective does, I don't, I don't know. People are dumb. The average human being is a dummy, so I don't know what the collective should do or can do. I do, I do think we should, we have laws. They're good laws. Let's use them. Let's, yeah. let's adhere to the rule of law. That's a crazy suggestion. <laughs> crazy idea. <laughs> do you, um, I, I noticed you, uh, you're talking about abusive relationships that people are in, and uh, there's a lot of information you have out there on, on different types of narcissists and stuff. Do you see, like, especially with the, the internet, right? You can put something out there, get an instant reaction, or get an, have an, you know, have a, be the cause to have an instant effect on somebody, canceling somebody, or whatever the case. Do you see kind of narcissists or people with this kind of uh, itch to scratch rising to the surface in this time? My God, don't, don't open Pandora's box or I'll give you a two-hour-long lecture with a whiteboard. <laughs> I, got, and I got time, I got time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I, to answer that in a way as briefly as possible, the, the, the thing with social media and what it does when it conditions the human mind, and it really changes your central nervous system. It alters you at a hormonal level. It's, it's a really dangerous piece of kit. Um, and I, you know, literally at the hormonal level, at the level of your neurotransmitters, your central nervous system is changing and adapting in response to social media, not just your cognition. That's the first thing that goes. So we're not just addicted to social media, we're conditioned by it, which means we will use it non-consciously, even without a positive reward at the end of it. In addiction, you snort a line of coke and you feel high. With social media, you might feel high, you might not, but you're going to use it anyway. That's addiction versus conditioning. That's the first point. The second point is, if you imagine the human mind um, as like a sound mixing board, or the human persona as a sound mixing board, you can be high and low in different traits, humility, uh, um, entitlement, exploitativeness, uh, resilience. And what we've seen is the mixing board through culture, uh, advertising and social media is, is moving the masses. It's moving their entitlement up, their resilience down, their, ex their interpersonal exploitativeness up, and the trait of narcissism right the way up. It doesn't mean everybody's developed narcissistic personality disorder. 
but it means that everybody's mode of being in the world has become very narcissistic. Mm. At the level of the masses, um, what that creates is obviously the most absurd demands, infantile, infantile tantruming demands over what they want because social media has trained them to think only in terms of themselves. And in the people who govern us, unfortunately, because they're obsessed with their public perception, because many of them are, not, are actual narcissists, they're very obsessed with their public perception. You know, when we used to watch the West Wing and they'd be like, how are we rating in the polls? You'd have to actually go out and ask people. Now you just look on your Twitter, you can see straight away. Yeah. Now you just look on the White House YouTube channel, you can see straight away. The feedback loop is faster and tighter. And all of these idiots are way too concerned with public perception. Right. Don't, uh, to, to the leaders, I would say, don't do what you do because you're trying to massage public perception and avoid receiving a bunch of dislikes and glowing thumbs down. Do what you think is right, you bloody cowards. <laughs> you'd think, you'd think. Um, <clears throat> I was just wondering if we could t take, a, you know, take a detour now into talking about the uh, narcissism. I, I've, it's uh, a subject of interest to me. Uh, you know, uh, my wife's former partner, uh, we had, we had some, we had, uh, I, won't, I won't out the person, but we had uh, a family member, an immediate family member uh, living with us for a couple of years in, in our old house. And uh, to me, I thought just clear traits um, of what I thought would be a covert narcissist. And the, uh, those relationships, I think, uh, and as you said, there's a lot of people in the police, security, combatives, kind of military that are in these kind of relationships or that, that attracts them to this kind of a person for a certain reason. But a lot of people are in it and a lot of people don't recognize it. And when they do, especially when it's family, it's really, really hard to get free of that toxicity because, you know, they're your, they're your mother, they're your brother, they're your whatever, you know, you got to stick by, you know. And uh, anyways, can, can you touch on that? And what does it look like? How do, how do people break free of stuff like that? Um, you know, they read, uh, sure, they read go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> to break free of this obligation. You read uh, plenty of Nietzsche, uh, which is a necessary poison for everybody. Um, you read him for a month and then you, you put it down and you don't read it again. <laughs> you go completely mental. Um, and you read some Adler who was um, a peer of uh, Sigmund Freud. Everybody knows Freud and Jung. Adler's not as well known. The reason for doing that is by immersing yourself in the works of these two gentlemen, um, we can develop a particular internal boundary that's not encouraged in modern society and really needs to be, uh, which is the boundary that says, I am me and you are you. Now, you're, in your life, you will suffer. You may be my child. You may be my father, my grandmother. All humans suffer. You have burdens. You're supposed to carry them. You're supposed to suffer. When you do bad things, you're supposed to suffer the consequences of that. And I can't save you, nor should I try. It's not my moral imperative to try and save another adult. When we've crossed that boundary, you're so much freer uh, from abusive relationships with, in the workplace, with your students maybe when you're training them, with uh, wives, husbands, girlfriends, boyfriends, children, you know, because if you leave that pathway open where you say, maybe I should help this person, maybe I should save them, you're open to exploitation. Mm. You're, you're totally open to exploitation, and it's actually a very mentally unhealthy position to adopt. 
many people religiousify it and they spiritualize it and they say, well, I'm like this because I'm a good Muslim, I'm a good Christian, I'm a good Buddhist. Nope. You're like that because you lack the courage to say no. And you must find that courage and just go, no. Well, I'll be homeless. I'll be on the streets. Okay, well, maybe you need to be homeless mm. so that you learn that if you're an asshole and you're a drug addict and an alcoholic, that's what happens. I'm not your safety net. Mm-hmm. That's the um, that's the sort of, I, I, on this subject, I don't teach people psychology. I teach them philosophy. You need a philosophical mm-hmm. to break through from that. Um. <clears throat> Yeah, sorry. I, I, you reminded me when you were talking about the, the authors there and stuff and, and, and not being responsible for somebody else's safety. Uh, I confess, with Ayn Rand, I haven't really read much of her works because they're very, very thick books. <laughs> yeah. Who's got the time? <laughs> Give me yeah, the exactly. Book. Don't read the books. Just yeah. read quotes. With Nietzsche, you, there's plenty of stuff on YouTube. Ayn Rand's the yeah. same. We, I mean, none of us have, and it's bloody, it's arcane language. I just got through Thus Spake Zarathustra. I read it from cover to cover. I would rather take a beating by 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> bloody awful, but I'm glad I did it. Sorry, mate, I interrupted. No, no, no worries. Uh, the one book I did read of hers, much thinner, <laughs> it's called The Virtue of Selfishness, and it was kind of a precursor to uh, Atlas Shrugged, et cetera. And, uh, you know, essentially the, the, the main point there is that, you know, everyone talks about valuing um, altruism and, you know, sacrifice yourself for the good of others. And, but ultimately... The, you can only provide the best for other people when you're in a position of strength to do so, you know? So taking care of yourself to make sure you're healthy, you're strong, to, from, you're in a position now where you can offer help from other people, but it's not putting other people before your needs or crippling yourself or putting yourself out for, for someone else. It, it reminds me of, um, the concept reminds me of the show Baywatch, uh, if you ever watched, I don't know. So it's Baywatch. Just, Baywatch, yeah, David Hasselhoff, Pamela Anderson, digga, 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 digga. She's running down the beach and, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, the one guy, David Charvet, he played Matt, and they're in this, like, lifeguard school, and the teacher at the front, she's like, you know, if you're at a pier and you have a victim drowning down there and you dive into the pier and waves are going to smash you into the pier, you know, what would you do? And the one guy's like, you know, I'm the hero. I would, I'd put, uh, I'd put myself to him in the pier so I could keep him safe. And she's like, so if you get like paralyzed or smashed or knocked unconscious, we're going to have two fatalities or two victims, right? You've got to put that other person there first and preserve your own health and preserve your well-being because only then can you actually, you know, save the one victim that's already a victim. Yes. Plus you can stay alive to save another potential drowning victims who otherwise without you will be dead. So it's actually quite selfish to sacrifice yourself in that way. That's right. Um, anyway, sorry, that's have those these Baywatch uh, flashbacks, but, uh, what, um, yeah, go ahead. You're, I see your lips person. You're about to say something. Just, just, just to say, um, Anne Rand is is a good is a good person to read. She's a, she she shifted a lot over the course of her life. She was a Nietzschean. She claimed later she wasn't, but originally she was she was a Nietzschean, and that's that's where her philosophy that's where it found its roots. Mm. Um, and she's a good speaker. The way she talks with the heavy accent and everything, and she's like, "You absolutely owe nothing to anybody except yourself." Right. It's a little brutal, but. People should uh, drink that brew because it's a good <laughs> countermeasure to the rest of the ideological shit we're constantly fed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what, uh, something of particular interest is covert narcissism because people hear narcissist, narcissist. What is a, I guess, what's a narcissist and what is a covert narcissist and how do they manifest in the interpersonal relationships? One of my one of my favorite favorite subjects. Again, I won't give you the two hour version. Um, so, co- covert narcissist is is uh, is really internet speak. 
Um, in most of the public research, published research I read on it, they would say vulnerable or fragile narcissist. And I think it's better to say that because covert sounds like they're just covered. They're a narcissist, but they're hiding. But all narcissists cover. All narcissists deceive. They all hide like, uh, like good ninjas. Um, so if we think in terms of vulnerable or fragile narcissism, it's, it opens up the, the playing field for us to develop tactics to deal with them. So uh, it was a concept that was developed in counterbalance to the classic or grandiose narcissist. So the classic or grandiose narcissist is, I'm wonderful. I know I'm wonderful. And largely speaking, the world agrees with me. I've got everybody tricked. Everybody or a good number of people think I'm amazing. So I can get narcissistic supply very easily. The vulnerable or fragile narcissist thinks that they're amazing, feels shame that they think that they're amazing, and really struggles to convince the world that they're amazing. So their narcissistic supply is, um, is always faltering. It's never secure. So they're, they're deeply insecure people. The problem with it is everybody knows the grandiose narcissist who is, won't, won't apologize, is never going to show any kind of vulnerability. And then they see a fragile narcissist crying and apologizing. And they go, well, narcissists never apologize. And they never cry and they never show weakness. This can't be a narcissist. Oh, no, no. That absolutely is somebody with NPD. It's just they're not playing the game as well. And their self-image isn't as, as uh, strong as the grandiose narcissist. Sorry, I've got a sneeze brewing here. No, nope. that's okay. <clears throat> uh, what do you think it is about people? Do you, ha do you have COVID and can I catch it through Zoom? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it doesn't transfer <laughs> through the airwaves. Um, at least with socially distanced. <laughs> um, uh, just out of curiosity, what, what do you think it is uh, that uh, attracts or that, that makes people in the tactical community so susceptible to this type of relationship? Because you said you noticed this was a pattern that was reoccurring. Mm. Um, I think that people who are drawn to serve and to save others are probably all raised in environments where there's pretty intense adverse conditions. And so I think, um, you know, from martial arts security through to the military, uh, every level, um, including MMA fighters and bodybuilders and, you know, people who it's all in Adlerian terms. These are all compensatory gestures from childhood trauma. We were oppressed. We saw oppression. We fashion ourselves as the ultimate tool of rebellion, the ultimate um, redeemer of bullies and oppressors. And, and, you know, so I think that there is a strong pattern of codependency. Um, amongst people who are involved in these things because why do it? But we're not in wartime. Why are we volunteering for the front lines? Even in the last 20 years where we have been at war for, for 20 years, war <laughs> uh, for 20 years, whatever it is we have actually been doing over there, um, it's not forced on anyone. It's never been forced on anyone. It was all voluntary. Why are hundreds of thousands of people from some of the wealthiest nations on earth who don't have to risk being shot in the head or beaten to death or stabbed to death at a nightclub? Um, why are we volunteering? Why are we putting ourselves forward? Because our mode of being from childhood trauma is I will serve. I will serve. Um, and we even have these terminologies there. You're a serving soldier. What do the police do? They protect and serve. Um, and so 
what you have in these uh, dangerous occupations, I think, is a lot of codependence with pretty strong CPTSD um, problems from childhood trauma, though they might not realize it. They might be like, oh, no, I was just raised in a conservative household. Dad was strict with me, but, you know, he wanted the best for me. And it's like, no, nah, dude, you're traumatized. You're actually, this, this broke, this bent many of your boundaries and broke a lot of them as well. <clears throat> and so... Um, as the psychoanalysts will tell us, that which we lived through in childhood and endured in childhood will try and resolve in adulthood. Mm. So people who are codependent and have uh, CPTSD will often find partners to play out the psychodrama with, again, in an unconscious attempt uh, to resolve it and to win love from the unlovable. So a lot of people I'm speaking to in this in this industry in this field they've they've ended up marrying complete monsters. <laughs> <laughs> is there a, is there a difference between PTSD and CPSD? And if so, what is that? Um, PTSD uh, typically would be more singular. So we would an event that occurred that you an event that occurred that you're traumatized by. Yeah, and we can identify it. So the event might be you know, your whole tour might have been the event. It might not just have been the IED that went off. It might have been the training and everything. But we can say, okay, that's what it is. And you can identify it, you can point to it, and then you will have uh, flashbacks that are flashbacks. We all know is a term that came originally from acid flashbacks. You take the acid and then you'd start tripping again. No way to do Not that either of us have ever done it. No um, <laughs> So then people with PTSD, they flash back and they have visual, auditory and kinesthetic memories of the painful event. With complex post-traumatic stress, which was identified by uh, Judith Herman in, in uh, her book on CPTSD in 1992, where she saw that... It's recent. Yeah, it's, oh, it's a, it's a recent, uh, recent diagnostic model. Um, she saw that... People who were raised in adverse childhood conditions, political prisoners, people who'd been stuck inside of institutions or abusive relationships had this certain cluster of symptoms that went together. Now, she called it complex uh, PTSD because the cause was complex. It's not a singular event. It's like a lifestyle that you can't escape from for a significant chunk of time. So the cause is complex. And then the response is complex you will have visual auditory and kinesthetic memories. That would be your PTSD. What you will have that makes it very complicated is something called emotional flashbacks as distinct to VAK flashbacks. So for no reason whatsoever, you, you, know, you go to the supermarket and you flashback and you have overwhelming feelings of guilt or shame or rage or sadness. And because you're not remembering um, the event that caused that feeling of shame, you're just experiencing shame, you attribute it to yourself. Oh, wow. Because, yeah, so then it gets very complicated. Um, and it's extremely damaging to uh, the, the sense of self and the ego because you just think, well, I must be crazy because I just went to the supermarket, picked up some milk and started crying like a crazy person. Now, people who've been diagnosed with PTSD will recognize this because everybody who has PTSD has CPTSD as well. There's a TED talk uh, from a former Marine who ended up going to prison because um, 
he, he came back with some trauma from Afghanistan. Somebody pulled a knife on, on him in a party and he really hurt the guy with the knife. Um, too much, the excessive force was the charge. And he said when he drives down the road in you know, Ohio and in the suburbs when he comes back, he finds the car drifting to the middle of the road because he's, if he's not conscious because he's still imprinted for IEDs are in the oh, wow. side of the road. Yeah go in the middle, you're, you've got a slightly better chance than if it goes off right next to you. That's a manifestation of uh, CPTSD. It's an entrained, it's not a singular event, it's just an entrained thing that you, a modality of being that you get into. So everybody who has CPTSD has PTSD, and I would claim everybody with PTSD has the emotional CPTSD elements as well. Oh, it's interesting. <clears throat> you talk about the supermarket to back up a little bit and you might feel that guilt or that shame and you know, you attribute that falsely to yourself. You know, if you have PTSD, you're like, yeah, I was in war or yeah, I got raped or yeah. And so you can identify, you pinpoint where it came from and you're like, okay, I'm not crazy. But with CPTSD, if you don't have the PTSD to go with it, it sounds like you're basically gaslighting yourself because mm-hmm. you're like, oh, you know, uh, you know, you feel that shame, but you don't know where to put it. So you just put it on yourself. But really there's an uncovered or there's, yeah, there's an un- uncovered, undiscovered thing there that's causing that. And uh, that, that probably, I mean, there could be a lot of reasons for that, but I'm guessing like childhood relationships, you know, you're, you're, in, you're in this narcissistic abusive relationship for an X period of time. And, and then that becomes a, a conditioning, right? Just like driving into the middle of that road. Yes. Yeah. You're, um, I think it, it, it's, it's usually if people are trapped and they can't escape and it's, it needs to be a very uh, immersive experience. The immersive experience of military training, of prison, of being a prisoner, of being a prisoner and being uh, interrogated and tortured, it actually um, creates regression. So the ego boundaries through the intensity of the trauma break down, and we go back to being infants again, which makes you very vulnerable to being reconditioned. You'll have heard uh, the stories of. Uh, grown men crying out for their mothers in the moment of trauma or great injury or perhaps right before they die. Um, that's because in that moment, they're, they're not, you know, the 35-year-old special forces soldier. In that moment, they're three years old again. The, the trauma is, is so intense, the ego boundaries just disintegrate in the face of that trauma and they regress to childhood. So um, it's really dealing with deep wounds in the most, vulnerable parts of, of ourselves. And it's, uh, it's not easy. It's, it's hard work. I mean, um, a lot of mental health professionals don't like working with people with PTSD. Working with people with CPTSD is like boxing a ghost. It's, it's, it's tricky. It's really, really tricky work. And you have to be very careful uh, when you're doing it. But it's a good challenge. So... <sighs> With narcissists, covert narcissists, and I, or I'll just say narcissist as a blanket term, you've uh, made a lot of videos about like enforcing boundaries and things like this. Would you say, or what would you say are some of the things that a person can do to uh, either A, build up themselves to the point where they have an armor and they have a defense against that before they encounter this type of a person or type of a scenario? Or if I'm a person that's already been through that, maybe I have CPTSD, what are the steps I can take to recover from that? 
If you already have CPTSD, I have a, a channel on YouTube called Fortress Mental Health Protection System. And um, it's a step-by-step recovery protocol. It's all for free. It's all completely for free. If you're looking to army yourself for the future, go to the same channel and look up. There's a long video. It's like an hour long about moral boundaries. So the solution to protecting ourselves, to future-proofing ourselves from narcissistic attack is, um, is really having a very strong value system, a very strong moral system um, that would allow you to a detect where somebody's going off course and then b do something about it you know it's just like self-protection you see something dodgy but you don't do anything about it you hope it goes away or you hope that group of guys is just going to pass you and your girlfriend by no do something about it immediately and make the thing that you do decisive and make it something that makes sense you know make yourselves take steps determined steps with strong intent in a way that protects you and protects your loved ones when you see the danger don't ignore it um, this is another thing and i think this is a modern cultural phenomenon we're trying to ignore danger or we're trying to pretend that danger isn't danger we're supposed to just sit there and go oh no these they're just nice guys they've had childhood trauma they don't, you know probably don't get on fuck those guys fuck them they're nothing to do with you you look after yourself and you look after yours um, and that's i think that we can't really answer this question without saying you've got to undo some of the ideological conditioning that you've already been subjected to first. Yeah. You know, people are not nice. Um, this is one of the things I'll sound like a right wing lunatic conspiracy theorist for a moment. Mode on um, liberal mainstream media and Hollywood particularly has trained people to think in terms of uh, victimhood mm. has trained people to think, that the essence of all people is good. So when you watch a film where somebody is poor or they're in prison or something terrible has happened, there is always the story that beneath their pain and the fact that they shot 10 people when they were a gangster or they did beneath all that, they have a heart of gold. Why do we keep hearing that fucking story? Why can't we have a story where no, actually that person belongs in prison because they're a fucking scumbag and they hate humanity. And they hate their, their sadists, their brutal sadists. We never have that story. We very rarely get that story. We usually get this, uh, everybody who you don't know is a friend you haven't met yet. No, wrong, wrong. Rapists exist. Serial killers exist. There are bad people out there. But we hear it over and over and over again. And then it becomes our coordinates for perceiving reality because many people watch six or seven hours of this shite a day which is conditioning, by the way. That's a brainwashing device in the corner of your room. And so they go out into the world thinking, it's all poppy dogs and rainbows out there. And then they have no means for dealing with uh, violence and they're extremely traumatized by it. And it ruins their lives. Like one bad night or one bad minute could ruin somebody's life because not only did the terrible thing happen and they got beaten up and stabbed, but they survived. Their whole worldview is shattered. That's where the real damage is done. When the, um, there's a German word for it. Uh, I won't attempt it, but it's the worldview. So if you corrupt somebody's worldview and then you shatter it, that person's completely broken for life. It's very hard to come back from, which is why when people are in, that my clients who are in, um, often in romantic relationships in adulthood with an abusive partner, 
what ruins them is their whole idea of love and attachment and of humanity is ruined. And it's hard to bring them back from that. You know, uh, you've, you spent a long time, again, prior to getting into psychology uh, and, and, and this type of uh, life coaching and therapy, you're saying you're into combatives and destructive combatives, and you probably, I'm, I'm assuming you could probably agree with this, that, you know, a vast majority of people that come to that kind of a training, there, there's, there's a few people that are just interested in this kind of stuff, right? And they, they obsess and they're like nerdy fanboys like me, but, and you, <laughs> but you have a lot of people that have had an event. They have PTSD. They've been attacked. They've had that worldview shattered. And now they're trying to play catch up after the fact. I got to get some training so this does not happen again. What, what role do you think combatives or martial arts training or self-defense training or combat sports training as a whole can play in building up that armor before something like this happens? Uh, and, and, and even in prepping you or preparing you for the possibility of encountering a narcissistic relationship like, and to set those boundaries. I think if the combative training includes in the curriculum these uh, emotional aspects, and I think um, we, you know, this was this was my stick when I was running Street Fight Secrets was uh, preparing you emotionally and psychologically, not just physically. The physical side of it feels good and is fun. You smash the bags and shout and you know feel like a superhero for for forty five minutes. It's good fun, um, but if you're shitting and pissing yourself with fear, none of that shit's going to come out of you because you'll be deep in the freeze response. So if the training is actively activating people's adrenaline and their aggression and uses uh, visualization and actually creates an emotive response so that we're conditioned to our own physiological and emotional responses, it will massively help. I suppose if the combatives training you could include uh, chapters on psychological self-defense and on emotional self-defense and the principles are the same. There's no, there's no difference in the principles, you know, prevention is better than cure. If you see something, do something about it. If you have the chance to be preemptive, be preemptive. If you need to be deceptive, be deceptive. Oh, I thought I was supposed to always tell the truth. Yes, but this person's trying to drink your fucking milkshake. You can lie. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think it could really help for sure. For sure. Excellent. Um, I have I have a question for you, TJ. Yeah, yeah, I have an answer. <laughs> it's a controversial question. Uh oh. All right. Uh, have you done? You've done handcuff training, right? Yes. So, were you trained in handcuff training that if you cuff a man's hands or a person's hands behind their back and lay them on the floor, they can potentially asphyxiate? Yeah, yeah. So we do uh, kind of in all the use of force training over here like that. Uh, critical incident stress, excited delirium, positional asphyxia are all really nailed on. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> so, I mean, we, we do like um, some physical tactics to help prevent that. Like, where do you put your knee? Like on the shoulder and on the kidney? Like stay away yeah. from the curve of the back. Right. Things like this. Um, but, you know, like when some guys drugged up the wazoo i'm working at nightclubs you know some people they go into the bathroom and they come out like three pounds heavier with whatever they just put in themselves and uh you know sometimes it can be unavoidable so yeah. uh, I, I luckily have not uh been the uh uh you know had that happen under my watch but i mean it, it does happen but yeah it's um it's it's a very sticky situation for people and and here in ontario as a, as security and not even a law enforcement officer. We don't have the same authority. We're just basically civilians that get only have civilians' rights. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, we might have some extra liability insurance on us to have some handcuffs. But 
you go hands on somebody with security, you're uh, you know you're running a, a really big really big risk, especially so in <laughs> Is there any way a cop of twenty years wouldn't have been trained that if you cuff a man with his hands behind his back and lay him on his front, that he's at risk for asphyxiation? No, they would say that they're at risk, but uh, yeah, you that's basically the go-to, right? Prone position, hands cuffed behind the back, mm-hmm. uh, just in that position, right? And then mm-hmm. if you're, you know, because they can roll and they can move, so you don't want them to do that. So then you'd be pinned at the pinpoints to be your shoulder and at the mm-hmm. kidneys. So you have the knees on the back essentially, but not yeah. on the curve of the back where the diaphragm will expand and contract. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's about where we're at because yeah. – uh, you know, if the person's not being cooperative, they're not going to like let you cuff them while you're standing. And, <laughs> you know, and if they're on their back facing you, then they're equally danger to you. So, yeah. um, you know, it's kind of the best we can come up with to make the arresting officer and people around them safe while trying to do our best to keep the person on the ground safe. Do you think there's any way that Derek didn't know that George was potentially dying as he rested on him for seven or eight minutes? Uh, he seemed pretty... He seemed pretty, um, what's the word? He seemed pretty, as a, not as a fair, he seemed nonchalant about it, you know, standing there with it. I'm just going to have my knee on your neck, on your neck, not your shoulder, on your neck. Yeah. And I'm going to have my hands in my pockets the whole time, by the way. Yeah. yeah. Now, of course, we get the after effects that, yeah, PCP in his system and the video showing resisting arrest. But regardless of any of that, knee on the neck is the problem. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't let one of your guys do that for more than 15 seconds, right? You'd say to them, yeah, if you, put, if, put yeah, your knee on his fucking yeah, shoulder, not on his yeah, neck. Yeah, 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 exactly. And in fact, uh, I, there was another video poster shortly after in another department where another officer uh, had arrested someone. They had him down the ground. He put his knee on his neck and the officer grabs him by the friggin' pant leg and moves right. his knee over to the, uh, moves his knee over to the shoulder and puts it yes. there manually. Yes. didn't even say don't do that. He just grabbed it and moved it. Yes. I actually was, uh was in an incident in the UK where my head doorman did that. I was, I'm white. People can see that. The guy I was doing it to was, it was my forearm into the guy's neck. My head doorman was a big black Nigerian man. And he just, he didn't even say anything. He just moved my arm into the guy's chest mm-hmm. and said, okay, now, now we can work. Um, I actually, in that case, I, I didn't, I, I never really saw that as a, a racial incident. It's funny that it's kicked off this like race yeah. debate. I don't think it's a race. I don't think race was part of it. I think these are two naughty men, naughty in different ways, but neither of them are people you would want around your kids or invite around for dinner. These are, these are bad dudes, maybe with some pre-existing beef, um, who, who, you know, and the incident was, I think the big fault there was um, that they didn't arrest them. They just fired them. But we all lost that. That all got lost in the hysteria. I'm like, this isn't really a black versus, versus white issue. To, to me, when I looked at that, I was like, that's a police versus civilian issue. Mm. Because if you and I and four of our friends, if we all stood around whilst you choked somebody for seven minutes and did nothing, we would all get fucking nicked in mm. any country. <laughs> You'd go to, you would be arrested whilst we sort out the details and review the video. And they didn't. They fired them. That seemed to be the key issue. Who chose to fire them rather than, than arrest them? But it all got lost. It all got lost in the, in the hysteria and, and, the, and the madness. And inside of, I think, six weeks from the incident, people were calling for, and some states acquiescing to, 
uh, broad-scale reformation of the police force itself. Yeah, defunded the police, abolished the police, whatever. You had uh, autonomous zones, right? Set up uh, one in Seattle. Was it Seattle? Uh, they called it CHOP, Capitol mm-hmm. Hill Occupied Protest or Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, CHAZ or whatever mm-hmm. it was. And uh, yeah, like they just basically took over. It was I think it was like six city blocks or something like that. They took over for, you know, for, uh, you know quite, quite some time. Like I want to say... In and around two months, they were there yes. uh, before before the the government went in with their the forces and just kind of <laughs> cleared it out. Uh, and and to me, that seemed to be just a it was a it was a obviously what I'm sure you watched the video. It was a brutal video to watch, and it was very upsetting. And I think like that hard visual image, white man on black man, emotional response. That's what we that's what we saw. But if we took the emotion out of it. I think I think we I think that we the general population has misunderstood what they saw there. It's it's bad police work. It's bad police practice. It's not you wouldn't want to live in a place where the police could and would act like that. Even the fact that the people videoing it were telling him to stop, and we had Brits, you know, Brit, British armchair warriors going, "I'd go over and punch that policeman in the head." And I'm like, yeah, you would in the UK. You fucking well wouldn't in America, mate. You yeah, what's it like for you guys over there? Because uh, I know your police don't, I mean, you have some special police that do carry the, the firearms, but majority do not. And uh, even like you have uh, some pretty, pretty harsh, well, harsh, you have some pretty strict, we'll call it, uh, knife, knife laws, mm. knife laws and knife crime on the rise and you know a lot of that's going on there what's what's kind of the climate there and use of force climate and and uh you know personal safety climate over there right now i i feel um like in most places it's it's still it's still a very very safe country i mean it it, compared to where i mean compared i've i've lived in all kinds of of different places in the world oh knife crime's terrible in london i'm thinking well there are certain areas where it would be death for you to be hanging out without a good reason. But quite honestly, I, uh, one of the, the knife crime areas in London, um, it's down the road from where I used to live. I, I can't remember. It's like, I used to live in Bermondsey, but my bank was in this rough, rough area where the gangs were. But they weren't looking to stab me. I was just a middle-aged white guy at one in the afternoon going to the bank. I'm not part of their thing. It's a thing. These are... This is, these are, I'm not, I'm not absolving them. My God, it's terrible, but it's, it's gang related. They're in gangs. They have reputations. They deal drugs. They, it's, it's, it's quite focused. It's not like they're running rampant up the street, just stabbing people at random. And if you're not, like, if you're not involved in their thing and you don't, I mean, if you, if you said something to them, I'm sure that wouldn't go too well, but um, it's not. It's not, it's really not that bad. It's not that bad if you're not involved. The fact that there are gangs of very young people, 15, the, the, the kids who are dying, 14, 15, 16, is tragic. Um, it's a terrible thing and uh, something must be done. I have no idea what you're supposed to do because the problems are so systematic that lead us to that point. I don't know how you uproot those, those weeds. I have no idea. But generally speaking, England is a is a safe place. It's a it's a safe place, and our view of police uh, is too, in my opinion, is too far the other way. So in America, I, I you presumably you work in America um, sometimes. I, I I'm scared of the police in America. I'm like fucking hell. 
I don't want to have a misunderstanding and end up dead. It's too much in America. There's, there's, it's too the the general sense of be, of jumpiness is 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 too high. It's set too high in the UK. It's right the other way. People treat the police with total contempt, in my view. Um, this is from me doing uh, nightclub security work, and when the police would be called in, you know, um, you, you, we've we've lost the balance. We've gone too far the other way, and a lot of that is through tying the policeman's hands together, basically in red tape. Uh, when I've when I've gone to America, I've worked with people that are uh, either police or friends of. So I've never had that encounter. Actually, the, actually the uh, the second to last time I was there was uh, was in New Hampshire, and the person I was working with was married to the local police chief. <laughs> so there's oh. there's no proximity. But uh, the, I've had two encounters uh, with police from a non-work perspective, like me just traveling over there, nothing to do with anybody, and encountered police, and it wasn't anything negative, but. Yeah, uh, it still it still sits in my mind today. I was driving. Uh, I went to school in Edmonton, which is in Western Canada. Um, drove back to Ontario, so that's like uh, we did a forty. It was a forty-eight hour straight drive. Like I with my buddy, and we just kind of took turns at the wheel while the other slept. Take two straight days, so we went a little bit to one of the provinces, and then down to the northern border of the states, and then drove the rest of the way through the northern states. And uh, there was two times where we pulled over on the side of the road. And one time was just to switch over a driver. And then the other time was because we got lost and we we're trying to figure out where we were. And within like 20 seconds, there's like a state trooper behind us coming to see what's up. And I'm like, well, do you have a fucking cloaking device? Where did you come from? Out of nowhere. <laughs> and they're like, everything all right? What's up? I'm like, uh, nothing. We're just changing drivers. <laughs> like, what's right. going on? But they were honest. It was, it was it's crazy. Like I, I didn't see them. Don't know where the hell they came from. Just out of nowhere. <laughs> that, that's that's the other thing I notice in America. The the funding and the coverage is is way higher than in way higher than in the UK. There was a fight. I was staying in uh, Encinitas in San Diego, um, and uh, there was a drunk drunken brawl that took place outside the hotel. I called the police, and uh, they showed up within like ninety seconds. Four military style Humvees with guys in tactical gear. I was like, where the hell? What are you got like this is a little quiet surf town, but apparently there'd been some some event just up the road and it wasn't as big as they thought. So they and I remember just thinking, my God, I, I waited. I, I stood outside waiting for them. They're like, are you the guy that gave the call? I'm like, yes, sir. <laughs> I am. Everybody's left now. They've all gone. Sorry to inconvenience you, sir. <laughs> but yeah, they were they were there. They were there in force and, and very rapidly. And everything, you know, you notice these things in the moment. The adrenaline's going. Nice new Humvees, and I don't know whether they're Humvees, but they look like tactical-looking trucks. Nice new kit. Everybody's got brand new tactical gear on. They jumped out with gloves on. They were ready for a brawl. I was like, wow, okay. And young, you know, young, fit-looking. Uh, uh, people, so you can you could see there's that's not like that in the UK. My God, <laughs> <laughs> I remember um, my my first time over to London was actually in 2012, and I uh, did a seminar um, in Croydon at the Territorial Army Barracks. A friend of mine was in the military; he's retired now, but uh, he hooked me up with the venue, so we had, did some seminars there. And um, uh, one of the guys that came to the seminar. Uh, was a, the Metropolitan London uh, Use of Force trainer. Oh, and, wow. Um, later in the week, I was, I was there for a month, actually. So it was like later, a week or two weeks later, he's like, hey, we have this uh, you know, riot training going on. You want to come check it out? I'm like, absolutely, I do. 
So we got to go to like, they have this whole little town, like fake ghost town set up where they throw the Molotov cocktails at each other and they do the whole riot training. We weren't allowed to like take photos or videos for, I mean, we could for personal, but couldn't post it. And funny story though, over there uh, at the same time that my buddy and I went over there, there were, uh, I think four uh, big brass from the RCMP, which is our federal police uh, service that were there observing that as well. So I went all the way across over to England just to meet the people in my own police, my, my own police oh. department. <laughs> so it was really interesting to see them kind of without the guns deal with, uh, you know, you know, how they would deal with riots, how they kind of corner people off and how they'd use the geography to, you know, control things. And while they have like their Molotovs being bricks being thrown at them and stuff like that, it was a really interesting watch. Yeah, it's a, it's 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 a funny thing. It, it seems to me uh, like the the time period you're talking about. There seems to be a ramping up of um, riot police training. I, I actually at the time was thinking that around 2012 they were expecting riots. Um, they they were buying everything that Street Fight Secrets produced. They were buying everything within <laughs> within 24 hours. They were buy it, and I'm like, are they worried about? what I'm teaching to the mob the right. fighting, or are they going to be doing that? You know? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's, it's interesting, uh, to see because I've always lived with, uh, with police. I've always had police in my life. Um, I've got family members who are police, family members who are, who are military. And, um, it's just an assumed part of life. So to hear people call to defund it, I'm like, who, who are you going to call? Like, as, as, whether they're good, bad, or whatever, don't we need somebody to call when shit goes wrong? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are you going to do in your fucking anarcho-Marxist utopia if somebody gets raped or robbed, or you're the one robbed? Then you'll be crying for the police, won't you? Taking it back a little minute uh, to, uh, to uh, fucking Derek and George, right? You see that knee on the neck and, you know, you're talking about defunding the police. And I don't necessarily know, like, I, I don't think personally, here's just a personal opinion from doing the use of force training. Like, I don't think anybody was taught to put their knee on their neck. It may have been something that he did because he's an asshole or because whatever reason, but like to sit there with eight minutes with his hands in his pockets, nobody in their right mind is teaching somebody, A, first of all, when you're to put your hands in your pockets like that <laughs> and two, yeah. to put your knee on the neck and stay there, like, that's, I think that's him. That's not the police training. So that's, no, that's a bad apple, no. but the bad apple spoils the bunch, right? It's a bad apple that spoils the bunch. And this is why what the point that I was trying to make, and I, I you know, I, 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 at the time that happened, nobody could be heard because it was screaming hysteria from everyone, yeah. was we should look at the system. Oh, systemized racism. No. Look at the system that says... Look, those dudes committed a crime. They might be in uniform, but a crime is a crime. You're not you, the uniform doesn't absolve you yeah. and let you like, oh, you, you're a cop. Oh, deal crack. You're a cop. Stab old ladies. No, you're still under the rule of law. I think there was four of them. So the three guys stopping the civilians committed a crime. They're accessories to what turned turned out to be murder. He committed. Uh, uh, I don't know. Well, definitely manslaughter, possibly murder, depending on you know which type of lawyer you get and, and, and what the judge says. Everyone should have been arrested. The fact that they were fired says something about the system and the political climate they're living under, which is this is a boys' network. Mm. 
it's tough on these streets. Yeah, you fuck up, it happens. We need to let these people know. It's, it's clearly ruled by fear. And I understand, I'm not some namby-pamby, you know, librarian with a bunch of liberal ideals. I know what it's like. And yes, violence must be an option. But you do not want to live in a world where a guy who's having a bad day or is a narcissistic psychopath like Derek Chauvin and, a, and uh, a bunch of guys who are under his spell, under his sway, could potentially really physically hurt someone or kill them because he doesn't like them because he used to work with them and they, I don't know, they had some drug dealing beef or something. He fucked his girlfriend or, I don't know, maybe he shagged the bar girl that he wanted to shag. I don't know. But you don't want to live in that world. And the system that oversees them is the problem because they're cops, which means they're humans. If you've got like a thousand humans, conservatively, 50%, I think clinically you have to say 50% of them are going to be seriously mentally ill. Oh, sorry, 50%, 50 of them. Um, it's one to 5% will have NAS, will be full-blown uh, NPD. So, you, you've got to police the police. You've got to have oversight. It failed. And they knew. So they're living in an environment where they know, I'll get fired, but maybe I'll be, re, uh, I'll be re-employable one state over. Or they'll, they'll, they'll let me back in through the back door when all of this blows over. They knew that. So they act like that. That's the problem. You don't defund the police. You go to the people who are watching over the police and say, could you please apply the law and act lawfully? You acted unlawfully. You, firing is a punishment you get for turning up to your job at McDonald's late three times. That's the punishment you get. You get fired. You don't kill someone and get fired. You should see the inside of a jail cell. They all should have been locked up straight away. That was, that's the problem. And I, you I, get your severance. <laughs> you just killed somebody. Here, take a vacation on me. Go over somewhere nice and sunny. Forget about all of this. <laughs> it's 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 crazy, and it doesn't. Let's not be naive. Of course, there will be racial elements to this. Of course, cops on their own in the car when nobody's listening. Some will have will be extremely racially prejudiced against this group, that group, whatever. We're not naive. We know we know that, but the solution isn't defund the police. The solution is the solution is we have laws that protect civilians from rogue police officers. Can we please apply them? It's a corrupt. It's not really a race issue. It never was. I think it's a corruption and a professionalism uh, issue. You know, it is. It is a boys' club, actually, uh, and uh, and and I think you, you can look at. Police, you click at military. You and I both came work, working in, in door, right? And you know, with the bouncers, the team that you worked with, like it's a boys club, right? <laughs> and uh, it's interesting. You talked about before how there's a large percentage of people in this kind of work that enter into abusive relationships. How? What percentage? Because you said like if you just took humans across the board, one to five percent have some sort of NPD. Do you think there's a higher concentration of that in this kind of work? Like, not, not that I get into an abusive relationship, but I am the narcissist or I am the abuser of power or whatever. Yeah. What about, like, is there something about police work, military security that attracts me to that more than other lines of work? I first, I first saw this with martial arts instructors. And I was like, damn, there's <laughs> usually, I mean, the prevalence for narcissism amongst martial arts instructors is, is, is frighteningly high. Um, it may even be as high as like 40%. Holy fuck. 
so so yes people who are narcissistic or psychopathic will choose positions of power i remember years ago looking at um there was an operation in the uk i think it was called operation rainbow and they it was leaked it was it was a, an anti pedophile it was a pedophile bust and they leaked who the people were that were caught in the operation and the proportion of judges politicians and police who were say if a thousand people were caught the proport the proportional representation was worryingly high mm. so people who have this predilection choose positions of power knowing that it will assist in them committing the ability to commit this crime so yeah it's something we have to look at it's not expensive to test people for narcissism and psychopathy i was listening to uh, dave goggins uh, in an interview <clears throat> and he said with the navy seals they actively look for it they actively look for it. and hell week is is there to weed that out the police don't have that so i think he was calling for a version of hell week for all people who want to join the police it shouldn't be easy to join the police was his point um i think he was talking to joe rogan and joe rogan made the point they should all be doing bjj regularly which i 100% agree with like you submission if you want to do control and restraint work as a doorman or as a policeman you should be regularly doing submission wrestling keep you fit keep the fat off reduce your stress and you just get used to wiggling bodies and pinning people down <laughs> without snapping them, without breaking them, without breaking ribs, without catching a case. So I agreed with that. I thought that was a really sensible suggestion. Regular submission wrestling for all police units everywhere. Um, and uh, yeah, some sort of version of Hell Week, not the same as the Navy SEALs do, my God, um, but something that weeds out the narcissist and the psychopaths because apparently they look for it. It's a team. You're on a SEAL team. So you're either playing for the team or you're playing for yourself. And when you're exhausted and tired and cold and pissed off, your true tendencies, your true nature will, will rise to the surface. I thought these were very sensible suggestions. Very sensible. Outside of, uh, I guess, outside of a Hell Week equivalent or approximation, if you're, uh, and not just for police and military, but if you're a security manager, you're hiring a team of bouncers for a nightclub, or you work at a condo and you're hiring you know, people with access to sensitive information that are your concierge, et cetera, et cetera. As an employer at a standard business, doesn't even have to be security, what, what kind of um, protocols or testing or questionnaires can you put into place to kind of uncover these types of traits among people before you hire them? There's one um, really good one that came out. Uh, I'm afraid I can't remember the university. It was, it's an American university. It's only three years old, and it's like the simplest test for narcissism. You basically tell the person you're testing, here are the traits for narcissism, and you tell them what they are, and then you say, does this sound like you or not? And if they're a narcissist, they'll say yes, because they'll be proud of it. So there's, there's a super simple test that everybody, like, it takes two minutes to do. And it was shown, so they, they did... They did meta-analysis of the test results. They actually gave the same people a proper long-winded test, and they said, it's just as good. It's just because if you are a narcissist, you'll say, yeah, I am entitled. I am special. I do deserve more than other people. I do hold other people in contempt. I am in love with myself. Um, it seems crazy not, not to do that. I can't remember the name of the test. I think it was the University of Minnesota. It's, it's called... Um, 
if you just, if people just Google the the simplest test for narcissism, they can they can find it. That would be quite ironic if it was the University of Minnesota, since the whole George Floyd thing was in Minnesota. <laughs> yeah. It was Minneapolis, I believe, right? Oh, yeah, it was. It was Minneapolis. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, and now, now that I've said it, I'm actually pretty convinced it was uh, from Minnesota. So, yeah, it would, it would be ironic. Um, the, the other ironic thing that happened was I was doing a podcast with uh, 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 my mate from, from America for a couple of months before, and racism came up because he was he's raised in America. He's Vietnamese, raised in California. So we'd speak about racism. we go, what is racism really? What is racism really? And we, we, we came to the conclusion that to live in a racist society is to live with somebody's foot on your neck at all times. And we said this for like eight weeks before it ha- and then it happened. And we were like, holy shit, that's, that's scary. Um, but you mentioned that before, like this. We, we started out by talking a lot about politics and, and racism. It's, it's showing contempt for one group. It's showing contempt for one group and just kind of resting your nuts in their face and going, what are you going to do about it? that's racism. That's real classism. That's real racism. And that's, that's what we need to fight against. Nietzsche identified this as uh, something called ressentiment. Pardon my French. Do you speak French as a Canadian, by the way? Yeah, a little bit. We learn it and we're forced to learn it in school, but uh, after high school or after grade nine in high school, you can drop it if you want. I took it to the grade. Yeah. Then it <laughs> so, he said, once, once you've identified and, and scapegoated a group for all of life's ills, mm. then you're suffering from ressentiment, and you end up with what he called a slave morality, where you say, I'm perfectly innocent of all crimes because I'm the ultimate victim. I'm the ultimate prey. So as a predator, I can do whatever I want. I'm absolved of all guilt. And I have to say, we're hearing that kind of rhetoric is coming out like you can't you can't be you know you can only be racist one way you can't be racist the other i'm like that's the most racist idea i've ever heard in my life it's like that's like that term um reverse racism i'm Mm. like reverse racism you mean white people or people being racist against white people that's not reverse racism that's just racism like we have a word we have a word for that we don't need more words it's called racism you're you're attributing personality traits and characteristics to somebody on the basis of how much melanin they have in their skin. The group identity, you know? Give me a fucking <laughs> break. This is, are we still here? Are we still here? Are we still in the 15th century? Come on, guys. We've got to do better than this. We really have to do better than this. <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest with you. And, and I will check out some Nietzsche stuff because I'm not very familiar with the, those philosophical uh, works. But uh, again, having we talked about Ayn Rand. She's so like aggressively individualistic and uh, you know, that individual responsibility that uh, care of yourself, you know, that the personal responsibility, taking care of things yourself and trying to govern yourself and be responsible for yourself and not the collective, not the group. You know, I think, uh, you know, a lot lot of people can really, we need that today. I think a lot of people who, who would be your followers who are drawn to combatives training. Um, I think in, in this podcast, I'm probably, there's a, I think it's called preaching to the choir. I know that people will espouse ideas of rugged individualism because why the hell else would you bother your ass to go and learn combatives? If you're a collectivist, you'd have this, God, I hate this position that people have. I should be allowed to walk wherever I want, whenever I want. 
free from being abused and attacked and raped and robbed. Yes, you should, but yeah. you're not. <laughs> that's right, that's right. You have the moral right to do so, but it doesn't mean yeah. there's not going to be a consequence because like you said, there are bad men out there. Yeah, it's risky. It's a risky business. There's bad men, there's bad women, there's, there's bad humans. They don't wish you well. It's not that they're you know, bad because of childhood trauma, but they have a heart of gold. And if you just negotiate with them, you'll get down to the good. But no, 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 no. They just want to hurt you. They just want to take, they don't care about you. They don't care about humanity. So the idea that it's kind of a um, utopian defense, I should be allowed to. Yes, you should, but we don't live in a utopia, not yet. And I can't see it coming for a good few centuries yet. Yeah. Whilst we live in this world, it's responsible for you to learn the basics of self-protection. Every human being should. Up to that point of submission wrestling, I, it's not my favorite thing. My favorite thing is Muay Thai, as I say. But the thing with doing, I'm, I'm saying submission wrestling instead of BJJ because... Grappling is a general term, right? Yes, because I'm a nerd and I don't want Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu to get all of the credit. I want people <laughs> to catch. I want people to... Yeah. Um, yeah. It gets too much credit and it irritates me. Uh, everybody can do it and it's 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 you can go pretty hard and it can still be safe and it it makes you uh, mentally emotionally and physically tougher because it's bloody hard work you're pushing you're pulling you're engaging pretty much all of your your muscles to do it really show you where you're up to fitness wise um and i i do think across the board we could do with a good dose of rugged individualism and get away from this weak-willed sick mentality of of the of the collectivist like i'm frail i couldn't possibly i have these illnesses these mental health issues you're an apex predator man you're the result of millennia of evolution in the fucking roughest conditions imaginable you're only here because of torture death starvation and illness you're fine. You can stand to do a little submission wrestling on a Thursday night. My God. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, uh, as, as discouraging as it is to see kind of the state of things and, you know, you got Brexit going on over there. We have an uh, election in the States coming up this year. Maybe we have an election in Canada um, with our own government without turmoil over here. Our, the leader of our opposition just got elected. And uh, so we have an election possibly being called early, but as late as 2023, I think is when actually our election year is. And you got a lot of crazy stuff going on here. But you see the rise of people, one of our homegrown heroes, Jordan Peterson, right? Who's all about personal responsibility and the individualism. And, and, and you see how his message catches fire and gets a huge following. So I'm encouraged by that. You know, there's some sanity left in the world and, and there's, uh, you know, there's an element out there uh, that will, that will toe the line of, uh, of that individualism, I think, and, and kind of keep some sort of, a, it'll be like a check and balance, you know, throughout. There's a, there's a huge thirst for it. There's a huge thirst for authenticity. There's a huge thirst for reason and rationality and data-based thinking, research-based thinking. There will be a huge backlash against this uh, subjective emotionality. I see it amongst some Gen Zers now. I, I'm actually slightly worried that Gen Z is going to swing all the way to the right mm. politically because they're sick of this leftist bullshit. Um, I'm speaking from, if you've just joined, I am a leftist. I just don't <laughs> like regressive leftism. I, I really loathe it. Um, the, these, there's a, I think Jordan Peterson actually just mentioned, he made this point. You know, There's a huge difference between a social liberal and a classic liberal. The social liberals want equality of outcome. 
yeah. classic liberals like me want equality of opportunity. And though we're both on the left, we're a world apart. We're a world apart. I, I really think giving people stuff is poison. It's a poisonous thing to do. That video I recommended before on the Fortress Mental Health YouTube channel on moral boundaries, most of those videos on overcoming psychological problems, there's like 12 of them, they got about 20,000 views. The moral boundaries one got 90,000 views inside of a month. And I was like, holy shit. The thirst now to be told, this is right, this is wrong. You don't have to do things that you think are wrong. Don't be pressured, don't be bullied. You're right, they're not. What they're saying is, is you know in your body, you know somatically when you're being force-fed bullshit. Don't ignore that feeling. Just say, this is all shit. Sky is blue, water is wet, right is right, wrong is wrong. Ah, let's all return to sanity again. That would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> Man. Rich, I really want to thank you for, for joining me today and, and taking the time uh, to no chat. Problem. And uh, man, I, I really, uh, you know, I know you're a busy guy, but I'd love to have you on again. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to. It's been, been an absolute pleasure. You're, uh, so you, yeah, so you, you run your online business, Spartan Life Coach, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, you're saying you leave, was it tonight or tomorrow you go to Czech, Czech Republic? I'll be going to the Czech Republic uh, uh, tomorrow night for as long as they'll have me because they still are dancing bachata over there. These days I spend more time dancing bachata than headbutting and eye gouging people. But in this country, it's illegal to dance. It's illegal. It's against the law to dance in close proximity. So I'll be going to Prague to dance with Czech ladies. Our, uh our uh, chief medical officer here in Canada made the recommendation that if you're going to have sex, you should do it with a mask on. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any other way? <laughs> Oral and then put it back on. Yeah. yeah, I wasn't aware that non-masking was ever an option. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, insane stuff. Hey, just, uh, just before we head off, there's, uh, there's been a lot of talk now, especially since Brexit coming up, of uh, Kanzuk. Have you heard of this? Kanzuk? Uh, who? Kanzuk? Kanzuk. C-A-N-Z-U-K. So what? the idea is you take your Commonwealth countries like Canada, uh, UK, uh, New Zealand, and Australia, and they basically have uh, greater kind of trade arrangements, uh, trade mm. agreements, and passports from either of the countries. Like basically, they kind of remove the, the, the boundaries. So like, I'm Canadian, I can come live in London uh, mm -hmm. just because I'm a citizen of Canada or Australia, New Zealand, or whatever, and vice versa. And uh, I find that I find that pretty exciting. <laughs> actually. Yeah, sounds like a great idea. Where do I where do I sign the petition for that? I'll look it up afterwards. I think um, I think we do need a, a reshuffle politically and economically, and that sounds like a very sensible option. Uh, we would be creating a, a new superpower. We could compete from that position. That's one of the things they're saying. It, uh, it, if you have that Kanzuk kind of alliance, uh, you you kind of uh, escalate that that trading power and and mm. you know yeah like a, a superpower an economic superpower essentially as a as a joint entity so it's a pretty exciting idea i hope i hope it comes through yeah no i'd i'd, I'd like that very much and uh, it would mean i could piss around in canada australia and new zealand too that's right yeah as long as you wear a mask while you're having sex <laughs> yes. as, and, as per usual like i actually can't come otherwise <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew, I knew, I could, I could tell. All right, so thank you. So SpartanLifeCoach.com, mm -hmm. and you can find, just uh, search Richard Grannon on YouTube or Spartan Life Coach, and you'll see all of his stuff, and I'll have all the links 
uh, down below in the description. And uh, again, Richie, I really, really appreciate you coming on today. It's a pleasure to speak to you, sir. Thank you, sir. Really enjoyed it. Cheers. Talk soon.